Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. Thank you, Drake. Did you just you just learned to play that this week, didn't you? That's pretty good. How many years have you been playing that? Six? Okay. Very good. It's awesome. Appreciate that. You using your gift to the glory of God. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. Welcome to New Covenant Fellowship. If you've been here for the last couple weeks, you will know that we are in the book of Revelation and we're just getting started. We're going to brave the waters here. It is a book that is written for us, not directly to us, and so the approach will be we'll be examining it in, first of all, how would the first century Christians understand these words? That's the most important thing. But it's a, it's a hard book. It's a strange book. And um, it doesn't exactly read like a bedtime story. And because it's so weird and strange and unfamiliar to us, it opens itself up to a lot of strange interpretations and strange approaches. People look at this book and have different thoughts about it and come away with different things. So, for example, one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. and That means he believed in a deity, but he believed that the, the, the Creator created everything, all the laws of the universe. He set it in motion, this deity, but then left, pretty much disappeared. So, we are left on our own through reason to find our way. There's no inspiration. There's no supernatural here. And somebody made mention a few weeks ago in Sunday school, I think, of Jefferson's Bible. Thomas Jefferson did have a Bible, and he cut the things out of it that he didn't believe in. So all supernatural miracles were not in this Bible. But Thomas Jefferson had some opinions about the book of Revelation as well. And he said, or described the book of Revelation to Alexander Smythe in 1825, as merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherence of our own nightly dreams. So that's his take on Revelation. So there's a lot of different thoughts out there, and it's not uncommon at all. Things kind of come and go uh, throughout the church, not so long ago, uh, some Christians were saying that don't get the COVID-19 vaccine because it's the mark of the beast. And uh, before that, it was an implanted chip. And before that, it was the chip in our credit cards because it has to do with buying and selling. You don't ever know where it's going to start or end. So what is the mark of the beast? Well, we don't know yet. We have to wait till chapter 13 to figure that out, right? We're just in chapter one, we've got to be patient with all of that. So, by way of introduction so far, we, we introduced the book and we introduced the genre of the book and also the different interpretations. There are no less than four different ways to look at this book and that's why we hear so many different commentaries and different takes on what different passages mean in this book. It's because people start in different places. If you start a different place, you're going to end in different places. So today we want to look at verses 1 through 3, actually dive into God's Word here. Let me read that for you. Revelation chapter 1, the first three verses. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now this is Revelation, is the book of Revelation. No S on the end. What is a revelation? Or in the Greek here, it's, it's an apocalypse. Well, it's a revealing. R.C. Sproul in this morning's Sunday school talked about revelation. It's an unveiling. It's an unfolding. It's pulling the top off the can, if you will. Perhaps you've gone to a play or a drama, and at the beginning, well, we've had some here, and we drape a wire from that hook over that door to that hook over that door, and the curtains are closed. And there's all kinds of activity back here, and we're out there, and we don't know what's going on because it's closed, it's veiled. And then slowly the curtains open. And we see a little bit of what's going on. We see a few characters that are going to be in the drama or the play or the theater and so forth. So Revelation is an unveiling of things that we would not see. God reveals things to us that otherwise we would not see. And in this particular book, he does it in a different way. He uses uh, symbols. He uses colors. He uses numbers to reveal things to us that we would not know. It's different, but it's effective. It is no less the Word of God. So the word apocalypse is used about 18 times in the New Testament. Let me just give you one example. In Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed different word, not the same word, had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So this was just a personal, uh, intimate knowledge that Simeon had. He He had a relationship with the Lord, and this is what the Lord revealed. This wasn't for everybody, it was for him. So he's waiting for the fulfillment of this promise that he had. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him According to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation, apocalypse, to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So, the God will be unveiled, God will be revealed in a glorious way to His own people, but also now to the Gentiles who had been veiled to the things of God up until this time. Now many approach this book because it's difficult as if God's hiding in it and you have to just kind of really, really get strange with it to connect the dots. But this is a book that God wants to be found in. This is a book that he has is, he is chosen to disclose Himself in to us. And so I look forward to, to learning more about who God is, His nature, and His plan. The Gospels 
reveal Christ in His humiliation. Revelation reveals Christ in His exaltation. These are two different views of the same God. Now here's a long quote. It's even longer than this. I had to edit it, but it's like, where do I stop with this? So bear with me. It's by W.A. Criswell, who died uh, actually um, early last year at the age of 92. He's a very prominent pastor and at one time president of the Southern Baptist Association. So commenting on the book, he said, The first time our Lord came into this world, He came in the veil of our flesh. His deity was covered over with His manhood. His godhood was hidden by His humanity. Just once in a while did His deity shine through as on the Mount of Transfiguration or as in the miraculous works. But most of the time, the glory, the majesty, the deity, the wonder and the marvel of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, were veiled. These attributes were covered over in flesh. He was born in a stable. He grew up in poverty. He knew what it was to hunger and to thirst. He was buffeted and beaten and bruised. He was crucified and raised up as a felon before the scoffing gaze of the whole earth. The last time the world saw Jesus was when it saw Him hanging in shame and misery and anguish upon a cross. He later appeared to a few of His believing disciples, but the last time that the unbelieving world ever saw Jesus was when it saw Him die as a malefactor, as a criminal, crucified on a Roman cross. That was part of God's plan, a part of the immeasurable, illumable grace and love of our Lord. And then He goes on to say this, But is that all the world will ever see of our Savior? Dying in shame on a cross? No. It is also the part and plan of God that someday this unbelieving, this blasphemous, this godless world shall see the Son of God in His full character and glory, in majesty, in full-orbed wonder and marble of His Godhead. Then all men shall look upon Him as He really is. They shall see Him holding in His hands the title deed to the universe, holding in His hands the authority of all creation in the universe above us, in the universe around us, and in the universe beneath us, holding this world and its destiny in His pierced and loving hands. God reveals Himself in this book. And He does it in a majestic way. It's different, but we will see the glory of God. He is revealed in this book in many, many ways. How do we see Him in the book of Revelation? Well, He's the risen, glorified Lamb. He's the judge on the throne. He's the ruler of all kings. He's the ruler of all rulers on the earth. He's the beginning and the last, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lamb upon the throne. He's the root of Jesse. He's the keys to the kingdom. He's the Alpha and the Omega. And He is the one that holds the seven stars in His right hand. He's the one that walks upon and in and through the seven lampstands, the churches of the world. He is the Lion of Judah. He is the Word of God. He is the Amen. We were created to behold wonderful, majestic, glorious things. In particular, created to behold the glories of 
of the one and only God and we will behold Him in this book of Revelation. Many ask, the book of Revelation, so what is it? Is it a revelation just about Christ? Or is it a revelation about content? Is there subject here that God is also revealing to us? And I don't know why. Scholars argue about even that. In studying this book, I have not come across a single verse where I didn't, I didn't find five or ten different dogmatic opinions about what it said. So which is it? I think it's both. Obviously, in this book, Christ reveals Himself. We, we just saw examples of who He is, and he, He'll deepen our understanding. We get lots of pictures of who He is. But also, He is revealing content to us. He's revealing the things of the past, the things that are, and the things that will come. It's both in this book. We'll see Christ and His kingdom. And we'll see the world as we have never seen it before. So the Father gives something to Jesus to be revealed. And Jesus gives it to His messengers, angels. And the angels deliver it, that content, to John, His servant. That content will specifically help the believers that read it first. In the first century. It will specifically help them to understand God's plan. To help them get through the times that will soon befall them. And that turns out to be times of persecution. It's not just an advanced history lesson. It's not just to satisfy our curiosity. This is meat that Christians will need. They will need to cling to these words. In order to be prepared for the things that God has revealed will come. So other than Christ, what does the Lord reveal to us in this book? There are lots of warnings about sin. You can't escape that if you're going to read God's Word. There's lots of warnings about sin. There's encouragement to the church to be pure in doctrine, to honor and value God's Word. There's encouragement to be faithful. There's, there's revelation in this book about the effectiveness of the, the prayers of the saints. They're, they're a bowl like a, a bowl of incense before the throne of God. Helmet mentioned this morning in Sunday school that there's more to the world that meets the eye and one thing that can impact it. It's not just blind, cold, impersonal nature. One thing that can impact the world as we know it and see it is the prayers of a believer. And we see this in the book of Revelation as they are before the face of God and He takes tremendous delight in the prayers of His people. It reveals how Christians will be killed. Some will be martyred, killed for their faith. But it also reveals... uh, It reveals evil in its worst form, Satan in his worst form, but it reveals the overcoming Lord. Evil and darkness as we know it in this world is absolutely no match for the Jesus that we find in the book of Revelation. Once hidden from view, now disclosed in written form. We'll find that one of the main goals of this book is simply to build up believers. To build up the church. To build up those whom God has called out. And redeemed. Those that He calls to be lights in the darkness. 
It takes the power of God. It takes the wisdom of God. And it takes a personal resolve on our part to press into God so that we can be prepared to do the works that the Lord has for each of us to do. No story is the same when it comes to God's saints. And the way we make it to the end, by the way, the way we endure the wrath and whatever the world may throw at us, whenever it may come, the way we endure the enticements of sin is to intimately know Christ as the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. You will find that the way that we are able to overcome is by valuing, there's no shortcuts, no Christians are let off the hook. The way we overcome is by valuing Christ more than anything in this world. Loving Christ more than we love our sin. That is our challenge. That's our battle. That's in our, de- our endeavor. Rather than forsake God for sin, we need to forsake sin and see it for what it is and cling to God. He needs to be our greatest, great, greatest treasure. The first and the last. That which we find our beginning, our existence, our purpose, our meaning in and know that all things are flowing to the end. All things are flowing towards the greatness and the glory of God and we are a part of that. And we need to look at the world and taste the world and experience the world through the glory of God because all things point to Him, aim to Him, and will find their culmination in Him. And as we go through life and we navigate the waves and the waters of all the trials that perhaps we're even experiencing now, Christ has to be the biggest picture. Christ has to be the biggest reward. We have to push our hearts, pray that our hearts will love Him and value Him and treasure Him more than anything else, so that if it ever comes to the point where we begin to lose things of this world, that we still have that hope and the comfort in Christ. We're not gone. We're not obliterated. We're not decimated. Because the thing that we held on to in the first place and valued the most was Jesus Christ, the triune God. That's how we prepare our hearts for hard things. Because if we lose the things we love in this world, if that's all we're clinging to, then we go with it. How gracious it is for God to warn us, to let us know about these things. And He's a gentleman. And He plods us and He works with us. There's not a person, there's not a true believer in here today that God has not gently, through the power of His Holy Spirit, coerced us, shepherded our hearts, communed with us in our prayer times as we cried out to Him and praised Him both this week for different things that came into our lives. I hope this study will teach us to stop making excuses. I hope it will teach us to stop justifying things, writing things off, and that we would see ourselves and this world with a greater kingdom mindset Because this world is God's. For better or worse, this world is God's. The revelation comes from the Father. To the Son, through the angels, to His servant, John. Now you know in Scripture when angels are involved, something big's going to happen. We just got through the Christmas season. And the Christmas story, the nativity the beautiful story of the birth of Christ. It's filled with angelic activity because kingdom things are shaking when angels 
are involved. An angel visited Zechariah and it resulted in him being mute for a while. Visited the Virgin Mary and resulted in her getting pregnant. Things happen. And it is very, very common in apocalyptic literature to, for angels to be involved, for angels to be explaining what's going on. And again and again in this book, angels will come to John and explain to him what is going on. They're on nearly every page of the book of Revelation. In the Old Testament, this happened to the prophet Daniel. An angel appeared. Let me just read a little bit of that to you. God sends this angel to inform Daniel of things and to prepare him. Then he said to me, Daniel ten twelve through 14, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. How's, what does that say about prayers, by the way? The first day you humble yourself before... I've been listening to you when you got your heart right, humbled yourself before me, I hear every word you say. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the later days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Now there's an angel. Turns out even angels can be delayed. Now I happen to know why this angel was delayed. He made the mistake of taking I-95 north. And if you take I-95 north, you're going to be delayed, maybe even up to weeks. Angel, or the Lord, the revelation is the same, the Word of God is the same, and we should treat it as the same. Isaiah 66, 2. We read out, Noah read out of Isaiah 66 this morning. All things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. That's the effect the Word of God should have on us. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Second thing I want to look in these, at in these verses is the, the blessed Bible or the blessing that comes to those that hear or read this word in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now we know that it's a blessing to read any verse in the Scripture. It's no, no one verse is any, necessarily any more of a blessing than another. Some verses mean more to different people. It's all God's plan. It's all God's revelation. There are verses that I would say are a little more important than others because some reveal more about uh, God's plan of salvation than others. But this is God's revelation. It's a blessing to us. It's a blessing to us to read it, or if we don't know how to read, to have it read to us. And it's not unusual, again, in apocalyptic literature to state things this way because you want to make an emphasis. Remember, it's kind of a shock value. We're, we're using very vivid descriptions to get your attention. And so it's basically, let me have your attention. <laughs> this is a huge blessing. 
This is a big deal if you read this book. It is to be taken seriously. So the visions, the symbols, the numbers, the colors, and all that the author uses in this will shock us, hopefully, about the seriousness of evil and shock us about the seriousness of our faith in Christ. G.K. Beale, one commentator I greatly appreciate on this book, says, It afflicts the comfortable and comforts the afflicted. So it has different effects on us. That's an effective way to put it. If we are too comfortable with our sin, we may need some affliction. Why? To wake us up. Sin numbs us. If we're afflicted due to our steadfastness, due to our resolve, we may need some comfort. We may need some encouragement. Both of these things will be found in this book. And we need both, I am sure. Symbols, word pictures, they move us, they touch our heart. Sometimes or often in a way that other means of communication do not. It's just they just pack a punch sometimes. We can hear things in one way and it just glosses over us and then we hear them in a certain way and it, and it pierces our hearts. God uses word pictures, parables uh, throughout the Holy Scriptures. Let me just give you one example because He's going to use... Now, he uses them more vividly and descriptively in Revelation. Let me give you one example of how God used a story of word pictures to awaken a man's heart to the reality of the situation. This is found in 2 Samuel, and it's about King David. And I'll read some of it in just a little bit. But as you know, David was a king, but he was backsliding. There was a point of his kingship. There was a point in his discipleship, his walk with the Lord, where he was growing numb to things. He was sinning in ways and didn't even realize it. He was okay with it. He justified it in his own mind. He was getting spiritually dull and he gave more and more up in the way of sin. And it finally ended in adultery and then murder. But for God, enough was enough. He had gone down to the bottom. It was time for God to intervene, and He intervened through His prophet Nathan. And He intervened, not with direct communication, but with word pictures, with a parable. Direct communication did not work. So this was crafted precisely to to speak to the situation and bring this man to repentance. Let me read a few verses here in 2 Samuel eleven twenty six through twelve fifteen. I won't read all those. I've added it for the sake of time. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she, she lamented over her husband. Let me just say, you've probably heard this a lot. Many, many times you've heard this story, but let me highlight a few things in, that I hope will be fresh to you. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the Lord that David had, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Twelve one, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and he said to him, "There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing." But one little ooh, which he brought 
He bought it. He brought it into his house. He brought it up. It grew up with him. Grew up with his children. Used to eat of his morsels and drink of his cup. Lie down his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who'd come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come. Verse 5. That was enough. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. All of a sudden, sin makes sense. And justice must be carried out. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. No pity. You see, the word picture woke up in David's heart, awakened in David's heart the very things that he lacked. He had just committed adultery. He had just murdered. There was no pity in his heart. Nathan said, you know the words. You are the man. The man that you hate. The man that you're ready to throw in prison or to kill. The man that must meet justice. The man that did this terrible thing. That's you, David. And David could not see it without the use of word pictures. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die, our forgiving Lord. Nevertheless, because by this deed you've utterly scorned the Lord. He displeased the Lord. Now he scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. And then Nathan went to his house. Sometimes we become so dull. Sometimes we become so indulgent that we get to the point where our sensitivity to the things of God and sin is just not there. I mean, who hasn't been there at one point or other in our Christian journey? We just don't feel like we should. Our, our own cause and effects circumstances aren't enough. They're not even working. We're not seeing how destructive we're being. We're not seeing how we're ruining lives. We're blind we're dull. But we hear the same thing in another person's lives and we picture it in that and we are ready to take up arms. We're ready to go to battle and fight it because that's just wrong when it's them. Kevin DeYoung wrote just this year for New Year's resolution. He said, how about this? How about we resolve to concentrate on our own hearts, our own godliness, and give others a little break. Give, stop, stop being so vociferous. Stop being so angry. Stop calling out so many other people. Let's call ourselves out this year. Let's be humble. Gent, gentle. Godly. See, this is a, a problem for us. Yes, even Christians. It's a problem because we get dull. We get insensitive. And, and, and the things that we hate the most are in our very own hearts. And we can't see it, but we can see it clearly to others. And we're so comfortable with our own sins and so harshly judgmental against other people's sins. May God wake us up. May God wake us up and may we be indignant to what's in our own hearts.
Are we deceived like David? Are we backslidden and we think, oh no, it's all good? Are we causing havoc? Are we wreaking uh, ruin on our marriages and our, and our families and our jobs and our communities and our church because we're just living in sin as if it's okay to do? All the while pointing out injustices of others? We will soon look at God's words to the seven churches in Asia. And not all things are going well with these seven churches, and we were clued into it by the Apostle Paul when he shared with us in 2 Timothy 1.15, and he says, you're aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. And he named some names. So something isn't right even in the days of, of the Apostle Paul. And he went and he planted these churches in modern day Turkey. And Christ has some choice. Jesus, He who walks upon the lampstands, the churches. He has some words for the churches. And some of it is encouragement. Thank, thank goodness. Some of it's encouragement. But He will dish out rebukes. He calls it like He sees it. Churches can be seduced. Churches can fall away. Churches can lose their standing. And these symbols and pictures will either sedate us further into numbness or shock us about the seriousness of sin. We are watching the fate of some churches in our own era as every age of believers do. We, we watch churches come and go. We watch churches fall. We watch churches give in to sin. Now, we are watching churches making the decision to say homosexuality is okay and even ordaining priests or pastors or leaders that are practicing homosexuality. We have seen many churches open their arms to wokeness. We've seen churches that are so loving that they open their arms to any and all behavior. All are welcome. There's no regulations or laws or rules about what you're practicing. The main rule is just love. John 13, 17, and I'll close with this. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Knowing's not enough. We learned this morning. Knowing's not enough. We can know things. We can know, as Romans 1 said, we can have a knowledge of God, but it doesn't mean that we know Him in the way that He needs to be known or wants to be known. And knowledge of things does not equal empowerment to do things. Do you know things about your life or, or yourself that you know absolutely you should change? And you don't have the power to do it? If you know these things, blessed are you who... Blessed are you if you do them. Our spiritual development... As believers, our relationship with Christ is so dependent on our diligence, our our love, our desire to press into God's Word, this gift of revelation that He's given us. We We will not grow without taking personal responsibility, seeing it for what it is, without being a committed follower and commit ourselves to Scripture and take it seriously lest we become dull of hearing. As Hebrews 5.11-12 says, the author of Hebrews, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. 
you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. He's saying, I want to teach you. I have so much more to tell you about God. It will help you in your life, and your walk. It will make sense. The things that you need to understand are all right here for where you are in your life, and I can't go any farther because you're not doing your homework. You're not caught up. You won't understand anything I say. Then this, this word here for dull has to do, in the Greek, laziness. has to do with laziness. It's an implication there. You're not going to class. You're not doing your homework. You're not putting any effort into it. What do you expect to get out of it, you're being left behind. Here's people, because they're dull of hearing, they're being left behind, while others are growing forward in the revelation of Christ. The Bible is a story. It's got a God. It's got characters. It can be known. We can know the Word of God. So let me close with a quote by none other than Tony Evans, a great pastor, regarding being dull of hearing. He calls it, you're being mule-headed. You're just being mule-headed. And he was preaching a sermon and he came upon this passage and he talked about the importance of knowing God's Word. And to make his point, he asked his congregation to turn their Bibles to the book of Hezekiah. And so, there were those in his congregation that were ruffling the pages trying to find the book of Hezekiah. The book of Hezekiah is not in the Bible. The king Hezekiah is in the Bible. He was a good king, but he did not get his own book. He says, some of us still think the epistles were the wives of the apostles. Others think Phoenicia is the place where they make blinds. He said, listen, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. Every time you learn something from the Word of God, you should find somebody to use it on. I'll say it again. Every time you learn something from the Word of God, find somebody to use it on. Say, guess what I learned today? Okay? Talk to the dog if you have to, but find somebody. Fathers, when you learn something on Sunday, review it with your family Sunday afternoon or Monday or sometime. Review it with your family. Use it on them. Why? Because when you use it, you don't lose it. It becomes part of you through the use of the Word of God. That's what Hebrews says. It says that you, got, you gained the Word through use, not through knowing it or just hearing it preached. God's Word is a blessing for us. Let us let it, let us let it master us so that we will see the world through the eyes of God and our minds will learn to think the thoughts of God. May God bless the preaching of His Word.